newcastlechurch.org. This is Christ the Center, Episode 24. Today we talk to Gary Johnson about the forthcoming book, Reforming or Conforming, Post-Conservative Evangelicals and the Emerging Church. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and today I'm joined by Jeff Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Camden. We also have on the line Lane Keister, who is pastor at Hall Christian Reformed Church and Hope Reformed Church in Hague, North Dakota. Good morning, Lane. Good morning, Camden. Well, along my side today, actually in the studio, I have with me a good friend of mine, James Dalzal, who is Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary, studying in systematic theology. How are you, James? I'm well. Good morning, Camden. And we have with us our guest, uh, the center of our discussion today, the co-editor of a new book entitled Reforming or Conforming, Post-Conservative Evangelicals and the Emerging Church. We have with us Gary Johnson, who is pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, fellow. We are really excited, as we normally are when we have uh, such a panel, uh, but we're going to be talking about another another big topic in uh, evangelicalism, in the church as a whole, and uh, we're excited to talk about post-conservatives and the emerging church. Uh, Jeff, I think we had a discussion earlier about uh, all the various uh, factions and groups of uh, evangelicalism we've been talking about in recent weeks, so we're continuing yeah. our march here and... Uh, <laughs> That's giving right. our take on uh, yet another portion of Christianity. We are staking our locate. We are marking out our location, <laughs> or as they would say in the Greek, we have a pousto, yeah, <laughs> a place to stand. There we go. But um, Gary, we uh, we've uh, thumbed through uh, a pre-release version of this book. Uh, we're really really interested in it. We've got contributions here from uh, Paul Wells, John Bolt, Paul Helm, Scott Clark, Paul Helseth, Jeff Waddington, Jeff Waddington, oh Ron Gleason, Guy Prentice Waters, let me finish off here, Phil Johnson, Martin Downs, Greg Gilbert, Greg Gilly, and also a forward by David Wells. Really, right. really tight book. You want to give an overview about what your objectives were, uh, you and, and Ron Gleason, in uh, bringing this together? Well, Ron and I were both uh, Ph.D. students at Westminster and have known each other for a number of years and uh, touch base probably two or three times a week. Um, Ron, also, you will note from the um, background, uh, studied for 10 years, or actually studied um, at the Free University in Amsterdam as well as Comden, and then pastored in Holland for 10 years. So he brings a unique perspective to... Um, what we're concerned with because of his European uh, background. And we were discussing one day in the process of uh, identifying concerns that uh, what was flying under the colors of post-conservatism, in which the whole category of postmodernism has become such a hot topic, that it was systematically um, rearranging and jettisoning, in fact, some core doctrines of the Reformed faith, in fact, core doctrines of historical evangelicalism. And it wasn't just the doctrine of Scripture that was being reassessed, but uh, across the entire face of historical evangelicalism, the doctrines that had come to identify it were now being um, radically altered. And chief among those was the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. And we thought, you know, it, it was kind of disingenuous that here we're supposed to believe that all postmodernism is a, is a way of addressing a postmodern culture and uh, reassessing the whole question of epistemology, when really uh, under the surface what was being done was a, a radical uh, reversal of the Reformation with uh, sola fide, uh, sola scriptura, 
and in, in an, an explicit form of uh, universalism, uh, making major inroads into what has historically been known as evangelicalism. And so, you know, even today, you know, you read uh, things like Brian McLaren's work, uh, his chapter um, that he did um, in that book, Generous Orthodoxy. Uh, he asked the question, Jesus, Savior of what? And uh, he then begins to say that the word saved in the Bible um, primarily just seem, means to get out of trouble, and contrary to how many preachers have uh, emphasized the save from hell or give eternal life is a, a secondary or a minor meaning. And then we're to believe that salvation has primarily a, a reference to the here and now, um, correcting societal ills. And uh, you may, some of you may remember Jane Davison Hunter's book a couple of decades back that boldly predicted this, uh, Evangelicalism, the Coming Generation, in which he says increasingly students in evangelical colleges uh, were reticent to speak about such thing as the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ, the nature of judgment. Um, and perhaps you guys saw that recent poll that the Pew Foundation um, commissioned, and it was rather alarming that uh, um, even evangelical Christians now are rethinking whether or not Jesus is the only way. Oh, I, I just saw... Yeah, that on the news, it said something like a extremely high portion. I think it was over 90% of Americans believe in a God or some universal spirit. But then it also said, I forget the exact number, but it was extremely high, maybe 60 70% of uh, people thought that there was at least more than one way of salvation, not necessarily their own. <laughs> well, you know, you have here, and I think Lane and I have discussed this from time to time uh, in our conversations, um, the ever-present threat that Paul warns us about in Romans 12, 1 and 2, about not being conformed. And um, we are as susceptible as any generation uh, prior to us, perhaps even more so, to the powerful undercurrents of our culture. And uh, I think particularly as we become more and more, uh, plur more and more recognized that we live in a pluralistic society, the notion of um, the exclusiveness of Christ uh, as the way of salvation is becoming more and more an embarrassment to people. Oh, you, I, uh, yeah. go ahead. You, you see this uh, increasingly. It's not, you know, it's, sometimes you, you, you guys have probably read that the emergent church is reacting to the uh, Bill Hybels, Willow Creek kind of stuff. Uh, but I see a continuity from one to the other, because what you had in the case of uh, the church growth crowd was uh, basically mimicking the culture around it in order to uh, um, get a, a place at the table, and the emergent church is doing the same thing. They're just simply doing it under the, a, a different rubric than the one that Hybels and those guys did when they set out to um, reinvent the church. This is not your father's Oldsmobile, That's right. that, that whole nonsense. I saw in Ron Gleason's chapter, he had mentioned that the megachurch appealed to boomers, um, and they kind of are children of uh, modernism, whereas the emergents are appealing to Gen Xers, which he likened to postmoderns. And I think also in uh, Don Carson's book, Becoming Conversant with the Emergent Church, talked about how the uh, emergent church is a reaction to this uh, megachurch movement, which is largely simply effective for uh, suburban, white, middle-aged baby boomers. It doesn't seem to work in other contexts. But, you know, the, what they share in common, Cam, yeah. is um, the theological aversions that the, the, the megachurch crowd um, had. Uh, in fact, I, I attended a local conference once uh, here. And you guys have probably got invitations in which there's a pastor's uh, a conference, and they brought in a church growth guru to uh, tell us how to build a megachurch. And uh, th th these, I took, I took notes. Uh, these were his talking <laughs> points. Um, first of all, you have to have a blitz ad campaign. Make use of the best advertising at all levels. Uh, second, create a very casual atmosphere. Third, 
accent fun and excitement. Fourth, adopt a contemporary, upbeat style of worship. Uh, dress down. Uh, don't stand behind a pulpit. It comes across preachy. Uh, messages, quote, do not call them sermons. Um, emphasize relationships, practical principles with biblical um, support. Go light on theology. Doctrinal distinctives need to be kept to a bare minimum. Uh, next, make easy-to-follow application. Refrain from making demands on the attenders and avoid any appearance of judgmentalism. Uh, next, work to create a sense of belonging at the very beginning. Do not expect commitment. Um, you also must not come across as intolerant to any group or lifestyle. Avoid at this stage words that are emotionally laden, repentance, sin, God's judgment. There will be time to highlight these perhaps in small groups later on. Uh, be patient. The formula will work. Don't listen to the negative critics. Weed out any in the congregation who question the direction you're taking the church. This may be painful at first, but you have to remember the words of Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Well, what is similar to that and what the emergent church is doing is the theology that underlines both of them is uh, decidedly not in harmony with the Reformation. There, There is no emphasis upon the core beliefs that the Reformation bequeathed to us. In fact, there's an attempt in each scenario to accommodate theology to the existing culture around us. Uh, Gary, no. uh, go ahead. I was just um, remarking the similarities between the two seem to be dependent on the similarities between modernism and postmodernism. I remember it was either Oliphant or Edgar in one of my apologetics classes remarking that um, they really are the same at root because they're, they're, they still start from human autonomy and the human exactly. autonomy, especially the reason, re human reason being autonomous. You know, if that's the case, then obviously you don't want to emphasize anything like what God says. You really want to talk about what human beings say. And modernism was just about, you know, this idea of the human evolution of reason as a whole, whereas postmodernism says human evolution um, proceeds forward on an individual basis rather than a group basis. So I, it just strikes me that the, the similarity you're talking about, Gary, seems to be very dependent on enlightenment uh, and how it has manifested itself in modernism and also postmodernism, which a lot of people don't really seem to acknowledge. But well, well, you think of, think think about it this way: that um, uh, that postmodernism is is really a form of modernism, as you've said, Lane. It's uh, in one of the chapters in this book. I think it's R. Scott Clarks. He quotes is it uh, Zygmunt Bauman, I think, where he says that this is really liquid modernity. Yeah, po postmodernity is liquid modernity, and uh, interestingly uh, to me, I I'm reading through David uh, Wells's book, uh, "The Courage to Be Protestant," for my bedtime reading now, and uh, he makes the comment that what postmodernism and modernism, or the emerging church and the megachurch movement, share in common is either rejection, criticism of theology, or a, a a total ignorance of theology or a sidelining of theology. And, and of course, ni neither is good. In fact, uh, it is David Wells that is the source for both Ron and I's um, understanding of these issues. Going all the way back to his um, No Place for Truth, uh, David, uh, Ron studied under Dave at Gordon Conwell. Uh, I've known David, who has contributed to a couple of three books that I was involved with. And I would say, without question, he is the single most influential individual in my thinking on these subjects um, and has really been a voice in the wilderness going back now two decades. Yeah, his whole series, uh, as you've mentioned, beginning with uh, No Place for Truth and then uh, The God in the Wasteland, mm -hmm. yeah. lo Losing Our Virtue, the Above All Earthly Powers, and now... Uh, the courage to be Protestant. These are uh, are very seminal works on uh, a theological analysis of the place of the evangelical movement 
end the world in which we live. It's it's, uh, it's uh, well to put it bluntly, it's sobering and bracing to read his books. It is. I was really pleased to see a few years ago he was invited to Desiring God National Conference. In fact, they named the conference after his book, Above All Earthly Powers, because his books are so important, not just for pastors and teachers, but also, I think, they're they're fairly accessible to the layperson, and they're going to understand uh, what he's getting at. I, I would encourage lay people to read those books and understand the influences that the American church and the and, and even the Continental Church has uh been encountering the uh, the latest book is especially accessible uh david wells left out the footnotes by the way i i must take credit for that ah. i was telling david that i was requiring my elders beginning with no place for truth every time he came out with one the elders had to read it <laughs> and they were um wrestling with david's books because they were substantive. So I said to David here a couple of years back, I said, once you put in a book that can be read by the average person on the bottom shelf, something that summarizes and condenses this. And uh, he did. Right. And my my elders uh, are now reading Courage to be Protestant and find it much more digestible. It's not that David's style was heavy or anything, but it, it does, you have to have a little bit of... Uh, of a background to appreciate where David's coming from in the, the the first series of books that we referred to. This book, however, he avoided footnotes and he addressed issues that basically summarize what he said before, uh, but in a way that's accessible to the uh, the person that I think most needs to read it. And I would include pastors in that. Right. Yeah. Let me throw a question out here uh, in regards to. Um, the similarities between modernism and post or liquid modernism um, in as much as the, the post-conservative uh, senses that they are epistemologically more sophisticated than their forefathers. They've found the, they claim to have found the seeker movement uh, lacking in substance and supposedly they're recapturing substance by uh, a return to um, historical liturgy practices, these sort of things. Um, how, how would you respond uh, to that claim that postmodernism is, is intellectually and especially epistemologically more substantive? But, uh, let Lane take a shot at that first. I, I think there's only one place where that claim could be substantiated, and that is that postmodernism seems to be a little bit more self-aware, and yet the irony, of course, is that they're also less self-aware. Right, because um, you know you, you have these analogies that often come up, like everybody's climbing up the same mountain, you know, and it sounds very nice and it sounds very uh, um, tolerant and all of that. But the problem is, of course, that the person who's saying that has to be flying in an airplane over the mountain and not actually on the mountain himself, in order to be able to see that everybody else is climbing up the same mountain. Sure. Um, so you know what they what they want to avoid is you know this meta narrative kind of thing, but in so doing, they substitute they simply substitute another meta narrative in its place, in the place of evolution, of the whole race, and having one story, they substitute a meta narrative for each person, and a and a meta narrative of individual narratives is what comes in its place. Right. So the, the proliferation of individual narratives becomes the new meta narrative. Exactly, and so I think um, while the claim could be substantiated that they're more epistemologically um, sophisticated, I think the reality is um, they've only gone one level beyond, um, but they haven't gotten to the root issues yet. To their their own presuppositions, they they still deny, and sure. I think in that sense they are no more. Um, epistemologically sophisticated than mo- than modernists were. Sure. Well, Lane, what they're doing is basically the equivalent of what John Hick did. Remember, John Hick is the uh, uh, I was going to say he's the uh, universalist, inclusivist in terms of world religions, and he described all the religions as being equivalent to blind men groping an elephant and describing mm-hmm. one portion of the elephant as the whole. 
And, of course, that presupposes that John Hick has the view, uh, the God's eye view, if you will, mm-hmm. what, what uh, Vern Poitras has referred to as the fourth or third level. In other words, uh, uh, they, they always exempt themselves from their universal uh, assertions. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. there is no such thing as truth, but that's a true statement mm-hmm. in their minds. So they're, self, they're self-refuting. Yeah, uh, the same kind of mindset I think is at work in in the uh, the current uh, post conservative environment. Yeah, I think Mike Horton uh, nailed it when he said that what passes for postmodernism is most often just most modernism. <laughs> that's, quite, that's really astute, actually. Yes, but, I think you know, that's at, correct. At what they they have in common, and I think it was Cam a few minutes ago that touched on it, was in both scenarios whether it's modernism and its dependence upon the Enlightenment, the boogie bear of all things orthodox, if we would believe the post-conservatives, or in the case of the post-conservatives, is they both have a strong undercurrent of autonomy attached to both of them. And this is where I feel Van Til's apologetic serves us in either case. Right. Yeah, I mean, how did he define apologetics, I believe, is the vindication of the, the Christian... World, world and life view or the Christian uh, system of truth against all f- forms or all various forms of the unbelieving worldview. And so they're all stemming from the same undercurrent, the same, the same root in that you can find post-modernity or modernity, but uh, when you boil it all down, it's just uh, non-Christian belief. I, I mean, think, think that's... Of, a, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, think about it, a worldview... Uh, or a world in life view is 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 a meta narrative, right? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's what we're talking about. So we could we could say that Van Til's apologetic is the uh, the vindication of the Christian meta narrative against all other kinds or forms of meta narratives, whether they be global or local. Mm. And the and the, of course the post conservative wants to stress the local nature of their stories, but of course they what as Lane has already. Uh, tipped off. The fact is, uh, they have they actually have a global meta-narrative, even though they don't admit it as such. Well, what, wouldn't, wouldn't admitting it sort of, I mean, admitting it would undercut uh, the, the whole uh, assumption that they, can, that they can guide or teach others anything. Right. Well, but, 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 but denying uh, the, the, the universal nature of their meta-narrative, of course, uh, seems to me to also undercut their ability to communicate with others. In other words, if, if, if stories are purely local, then how do we communicate between one local story and another? Uh, how do we evaluate one local story as over against another? Now, let's, let's replace story with theology, and now we have local theologies. How do we assess one theology over against another theology, or is it possible? No, in my um, in part of my PhD thesis, I'm sort of examining the the fragmentation of all knowledge, but as specifically as it relates to the various disciplines of theology. And I noticed that you have uh, Gary one article by Paul Helseth yes. on Old Princeton Seminary, and I wondered if you. Um, if you have in, in the in the various articles um, a, um, a, a an evaluation of this fragmentation of knowledge, especially as it's uh, as you can see it in the university um, and as you can see it in theology as well, Do you, have you dealt? Has anyone really dealt with that question? In, Not in directly. Paul Paul Ham's article may come the closest to that. Um, okay, but. Paul Hesseth is a good friend. He actually did a chapter in the book I edited on Warfield trying to correct some distortions about old Princeton. Mm. It's interesting to note that Van Til, when asked, said that he stood shoulder-to-shoulder with old Princeton in terms of theology and epistemology. Um, I remember showing that quote uh, to the late Greg Bonson, who was rather surprised, and I said, uh, uh, Van Til never said that he had issues with old Princeton's epistemology. It was the apologetical methodology that he, he called into questions, but I think Helseth has done a, a, a great service to show that um, 
Warfield in particular was no bald rationalist. Yeah, um, I remember, I remember did, really enjoying that article. Yeah. Yes, he did put an emphasis, Warfield did put an emphasis, that the Christian faith was reasonable in the sense that it wasn't self-contradictory, uh, it didn't have this leap of faith that you have to accept it because we tell you to. Um, but but I would have I would also highlight the fact that Warfield as well as Van Til recognized the seriousness of the noetic effects of the fall and worked both from the position that the natural man uh, knows not the truth in the sense that they can uh, be brought to understand it based upon just simply pure reasoning. Um, you know, Warfield said that you can have the most correct theology in the world, but unless the Spirit of God breathes over it, they remain like Ezekiel's dead bones. Um, the, the thing that that uh, I find significant about Van Til, and by the way, how many of you guys have read John Muther's uh, biography of Van Til? Oh, we've been uh, talking about yeah. it over and over. <laughs> it's uh, great. I think we've probably all read it. So Yeah, it is uh, a, just a tremendous uh, insight into Van Til, who... Um, basically is as pertinent today as he was when he was living, and I think that testifies to the the biblical nature of his uh, apologetical uh, approach. Um, you look at post-modern, post-conservative emergence, uh, they too operate with the same kind of mindset that uh, modernists operated with. They do it in a different way, in a different fashion, but they actually claim in some fashion that there are brute facts out there and that uh, neutrality can be, uh, in, in this case, in a postmodern context, we simply look through that grid. But to begin with the same assumptions, and this is why I think that at the root of either post-conservatism or modernism, there is an implicit form of Arminianism at work in terms of man's autonomy, in terms of man's freedom. I think they share that in common. Uh, Gary, mm-hmm. uh, if you were to, uh, to, to highlight one theologian uh, in the, uh, who, dead or alive, hint, hint, who's uh, influencing post-conservative and emerging uh, theology, uh, who would you name? Well, contrary to their claims, it's not Karl Barth. Okay. <laughs> I uh, found it highly uh, ironic that the late Stanley Grinz and John um, Frankie like to point to Barth, right. but at the same time as we highlighted in our own book, the, uh, the, the, the striking similarities between what Frankie and Grinz were doing and what Frederick Schleiermacher I think more than anybody, the individual that parallels or mirrors what's happening in post-conservative theology is Frederick Schleiermacher. And for those of you who know Karl Barth, if there was anybody that would get his dander up, it was Schleiermacher. So I don't think you can take a little bit of Schleiermacher and a little bit of Barth and mix them together. It's like oil and water. They don't, won't, won't work. Right, and, and of course Schleiermacher is uh, known for... Uh... Uh, he, as the father of modern liberalism, uh, who basically, uh, I was going to say, the way that I would describe his theology is to say that it's a theology based upon, ooh, that's a foundationalist idea, a theology that is uh, in some way building off, oh, see, I'm doing it again, uh, building off of uh, a Didn't you write Kant. an article on this and say Van Til was not a foundationalist? What are you doing here? Well, you know, we can get to that in a moment, but, just... but Schle- you're, you're poking fun at me, I know. Uh, <laughs> Schleiermacher is basically a post-Kantian theologian, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't get at God because God is in the noumenal realm. That's uh, right. And so we, we're left to our, our own religious experience, uh, basically. And, 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 and that, of course, as you point out, Gary, is very strong in the Grenz and Frankie book. The and by one, the way, yeah. as you know, Jeff... The shadow of Immanuel Kant is as prominent or overshadows what goes under the rubric of post-conservatism as it ever did in the Schleiermachian um, framework. 
Oh yeah, Kant is. Kant, I, I probably should have asked the question. What philosopher? That would be a, that would be a better uh, question. Behind, it would be stands Kant. behind this whole thing is Immanuel Kant in his uh, noumenal phenomenal distinction. Uh, we can't. E- we can. We are limited to appearances. Our knowledge, human knowledge, is limited to appearances. We cannot know things in themselves. That is the Ding on sich in the in the German, and and God and the things in themselves are in the noumenal realm. That's the realm we can't get at. We we can only get at the appearances. And on top of that, of course, uh, you know that appearances there are then filtered through the categories of the mind, right? That's right. So, so you've got two problems. You, you, you don't have a mind that actually interacts with appearances as they are. You've got a mind that brings order out of chaos by these categories of the mind. And all yeah, of that you, stands behind uh, behind uh, modern theology, modern liberalism, and also postmodern, uh, postconservative uh, emerging uh, theology. Yeah. See, at the end of the day, the question I'm concerned with is what the project that Schleiermacher undertook was to make Christianity more appealing to its cultural despisers. Uh, ended up in nothing more than full-blown liberalism, in which the whole the whole fabric of the Christian faith was made simply nothing more than a matter of personal preferences in light of our own subjectivity. I see a similar result with the postmodernist agenda, um, the post-conservative agenda. Uh, it ends up highlighting the fact that the Christian faith, when we finally get down to it and distill it, uh, is a preferential thing based upon our own unique situation and that the, the 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 whole concept of theology as something outside of us doesn't exist. Gary, wouldn't you see a uh, also a continuity between Schleiermacher and the post-conservatives in a proclivity toward aesthetics yes. uh, as theology? How how we feel about things, impressions uh, are are dominant for controlling our theological statements. By the way, um, our good friend Martin Downs, who did a chapter in this book. You're all familiar with his blog against heresies. Yes, yes. His most recent one on liberalism, a warning from history. Oh yeah, it's powerful. Highlights the influence that Wilhelm Hermann made on Machen, hmm. and you know his Pietism, and it shook Machen to the very foundation of his being. He had never met a greater Christian. Okay. He said at one point. But well, who was Hellman? Hellman, look at the influence that Wilhelm Hellman had on Karl Barth. And look at the legacy that Hellman has through Schleiermacher. Um, you know, in many ways, you, I have to at least congratulate Bart for the break he made with the liberalism that he was steeped in. Uh, Machen and Bart both went through that. Uh, Machen came out with his faith intact. Uh, Bart was constantly getting rid of excess baggage through his life. Um, but the end result is, I don't think, as I said before, that you can take the Schleiermachian model and salt and pepper it with a little bit of bark and sanitize it. Ain't gonna work. Well, the one area, Gary, where they do share a common uh, agreement is they both believe that Kant was right. That's right. Now that uh, is that 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 aspect of it, you could say philosophically, Bart and uh, Schleiermacher had a common ancestor. And that's and that's really I think probably about it. Uh, now, yeah, there was a uh, there is somewhat of a love hate relationship between Bart and Schleiermacher. There are a few occasions in his older in his more advanced years where he appeared to uh, lower the volume of his criticism and and kind of begin to show a, a little more sympathy for Schleiermacher, but never yeah he made the break. Uh, and those who are familiar with Bart know that that break came at World War One, right? When 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 Bart's own professors supported Kaiser Wilhelm's right. uh, declaration of war. But see what 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 Schleiermacher was doing. If you want to just put it put it uh, in layman language, was he ended up taking general revelation or natural theology, and using that as the grid through which he passed special revelation and came out with his the end result. Uh, this is why I think he is so antagonistic, or Bart is so antagonistic toward him in his uh, famous nine 
to uh, Bruner. Um, it is to his credit that Bart recognized what Schleiermacher was doing. Yes. Um, do I agree with, with, with the proposal he ended up with? No, but at least his analysis of what was wrong with theological liberalism was insightful. Yeah, Bart, Bart is, of course, one of those guys who very often will, will, uh, is insightful in criticizing liberalism, but he, he always, or almost always offers uh, a less than satisfying uh, uh, prescription. Uh, to, See, I, to, I find that I find that I find it interesting that I, I concur with that uh, that the Bart is useful. Uh, Burkhauer is the same way. He will analyze a doctrinal issue and cover it from every angle, and you're very happy with how he does it. But then when he starts his own proposals, you go, "Where did he get this?" Um, but there, you know, I I'm not one of these people who become phobic over the fact that you can read uh, a G.C. Burkauer or a Karl Barth uh, uh, and, and not profit from what, what they have to say. Um, I think post-conservatives um, have a tendency to gravitate toward anything that criticizes traditional orthodoxy. And, uh, you know, Barth Bart acknowledged that he was deeply indebted to the Protestant scholastics you probably heard the story about the, the the occasion in which Rudolf Bultmann stopped by to see Karl Barth and found him reading a volume of Coxeus, and he was stupefied. What are you reading that for? <laughs> and Barth said, <laughs> he's very helpful. <laughs> Interesting. Um, what was I going to say? The uh, Now, what's, what's different from... Uh, uh, the, the Grenz and Frankie, and that's the book we seem to be gravitating toward, right? The Beyond Foundationalism volume. Yeah. Uh, they make they take Bart in a, uh, where they do, and of course there is disagreement over whether they're uh, even handling Bart properly, right? It's uh, uh, but his name does figure prominently as the Schleiermacher. Uh, the th- there are three there are three legs of a stool that these guys like. Right, uh, they talk about uh, theology being done uh, from scripture, tradition, and culture, uh, and basically that's that sounds like a very Schleiermacherian uh, move that that the Holy Spirit speaks uh, equally through tradition and culture as much as He does through uh, Holy Scripture, uh, yeah. and that of course is a, a real problem. But the one thing they do with Bart that's different than Bart is they 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 if I may put it this way, they communalize Bart's insights or Schleiermacher's insights. Uh, instead of the with Schleiermacher, the influence, the the, the uh, stress was on the individual's experience of utter dependence, uh, whereas now it's the community and their experience. Uh, so it's a, a communal versus an individual view of uh, uh, of uh, Christian experience. Well, then I do think they, they do embrace uh, Bart's concept of revelation, which is where I have right. issues. Uh, the Bible is not um, in and of itself or by its very constitution the inspired word of God, but rather it is, and this is the, the term that is troublesome, normative witness to the self-disclosure contained in Scripture. This is where Bart parts company with Reformed Orthodoxy in a most significant way. And this is where I think Van Til is so perceptive. Uh, he identified with precision that Bart, on at least two major fronts, the doctrine of election and the doctrine of Scripture, that Bart was out of harmony with the Reformed confessions, and Van Til hammered that home, and I think he did so correctly. Uh, and that's why the, the post-conservative crowd really gets uh, excited over that concept of Scripture, and it's interesting, as I pointed out, you know, Roger Olson complained that evangelicalism, as it came into the, uh, as it came through the 20th century, was too much under the homogeny of old Princeton. And he identified the doctrines that, that shaped evangelicalism post-World War II. It was the doctrine of inerrancy, and as I alluded to earlier, penal substitutionary atonement. And it's very significant that these are the two doctrines that usually get, um, uh, drawn and quartered yeah. in post-conservative emergent circles. I mean, it's we could go on uh, you know, the whole notion that 
penal substitutionary atonement is cosmic child abuse, and and there are uh, uh, other prisms through which we can look at Scripture, but the point is they don't like that one. And the inerrancy of Scripture, I can't think of anything more uh, loathsome to the postmodern mindset that speaks with more uh, emphasis upon certainty than that. Well, of course, that's we're privileging uh, the Word of God, and that's a no-no, right? No, yes. no, no element in our knowledge can be privileged uh, over another, and and that's where Paul Helm's chapter, uh, Gary, I think, is very good, uh, very useful uh, work there in his interaction with John Frankie's book, the task, uh, the task of theology, or the character that's of right. theology. Uh, you a know, very good chapter. Paul Helm may be the foremost authority on the theology of Charles Hodge walking around. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. It's... If you uh, are going to take on Charles Hodge, you better be prepared to take on Paul Helm in the process. Yeah, he um, was it to John Frankie that he interacted with yes, uh, he a year or so ago? On Well, on it was Hodge. Kevin Van Hooser. That's right, it was Kevin Van Hooser first. Yes. And his, his uh, assessment of Hodge's uh, uh, treatment of the Bible as a storehouse of facts, right? By the way, there's a there's an interesting point there. Olson keeps keeps alluding to Kevin Van Hooser or Van Hooser as a, a fellow post conservative, but I think Van Hooser would have equivocations with, with the label that he's got stuck with if it's understood in the way that Olson is defining the term. Um, I can't no. speak with any authority, no. um, but I don't find Van Hooser. Uh, lining up and articulating the same thing that Frankie and Grants and others are doing. Well, not 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 as strongly, but my own reading suggests that he's he's, uh, in my opinion, in the drama of doctrine, he he's leaning in that direction. Yeah, I think he has a little bit more ballast to him. Yes, um, that's true. But at the same time, um, my own preferences um, lean very much in the direction of the old Princeton-Westminster tradition. Right. And um, I still feel that that if Reformed theology is going to thrive in the 21st century, it has to be uh, because it's rooted and grounded in that tradition. Gary, I, I had a couple questions about the two initial chapters. Um, one is, uh, could you maybe... Um, Tell us about what the difference in emphasis is in between Wells, Paul Wells's chapter and John Bolt. And secondly, do you, does either one of those chapters, uh, maybe I'm especially asking about the Wells chapter, deal with um, the recent developments in the doctrine of inerrancy as, uh, as we see Pete N's book and Andy McGowan's book and maybe also N.T. Wright's book? Uh, well, you know, Paul did his... Uh his dissertation under Burkauer at uh, Free University of Amsterdam on James Barr and the Doctrine of Scripture, and I read that and contacted Paul to ask if he could interact with more recent developments, and I alluded particularly to Pete Hens. Mm-hmm. So, so Paul undertook to address that. Um, okay. Some people got, I was, it was brought to my attention that Andrew McGowan's recent book had an endorsement from Paul Wells on it, and I, I, uh, I emailed uh, Paul about this. I haven't read McGowan's book. I just read criticisms of it, but the, they were from people that I respected. And uh, uh, Paul should not be read as endorsing the substance of the McGowan thesis that Old Princeton and Bob Inc. Um, are at polar heads, polar opposites with each other, loggerheads. Uh, but Paul was trying to address the doctrine of Scripture in terms of uh, its status today in um, theological discussion. So he had some leeway. Dr. Bolt was doing something similar, but from different angles. Another thing I've noticed, uh, Ron Gleason pointed out, this difference or change of trajectory from soteriology to ecclesiology. Yes. I found that uh, very interesting. Could you uh, just bring our listeners up to speed on what, what the emergent church is doing and how that's different from you know, in a traditional it, ecclesiology? Yes. I, I think that we're looking 
at this whole concept of, of trajectory. You may have you know be aware of William Webb's book, Hermeneutical Trajectories, and the arguments being made that, well, an author may have said this or that at the time, but if we look at the trajectory he was on, we can now say that if he were alive today, he would be here or there or wherever. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has become, I think, highly problematic because it's a, it's a, it's a form of, of mind reading. We can actually tell what this person meant, even though he said something different. Now, I think when Ron uses the word, the trajectory that the emergent church is on, they do begin. And I think um, you have to acknowledge the influence of N.T. Wright here. Uh, N.T. Wright's theology is just basically rooted in his ecclesiology. Uh, the doctrine of justification by faith becomes an, uh, a doctrine that is basically joined at the hip with ecclesiology. Uh, I, th- I think the Reformers would find that problematic. Um, but <clears throat> back to the point of, of Gleason's uh, article, is that the, the trajectory, uh, you know, we can actually look at a trajectory in a useful sense that given the present trend, um, this is where you're going. Um, if, if we begin with the assumption that the doctrine of Scripture is... is um, um, our, under, our understanding of the doctrine of Scripture is something that is contextualized in our own uh, sits in Leben, as the Germans would say. Um, then we, we keep adjusting it as the culture changes around us, which is, I think, what the uh, emergent people are most anxious to do is have the culture, in this case our postmodern culture, define the parameters by which we understand the doctrines of Scripture. Uh, then you get a trajectory in which you wind up saying, down the road, this is going to end up at a dead end. We're going to end up with a doctrine of Scripture that is so uh, relativized that we can't no longer thus say, thus say, thus, we can no longer say, thus saith the Lord, but it appears to me, or this is what I prefer. And so the Word of God ends up getting muted. Um, and, and by the way, you, you see parts of this in the Old Testament where in Jeremiah, for example, the prophet is expressing himself in, in uh, great irritability over the fact that the Word of God is effectively muted because people make God into their own image and end up saying, well, this is not the God we'd really like to listen to. The God we'd prefer has more of a likeness to our own selves, and even um, you find God expressing his own contempt to them by saying, you thought I was altogether like you. And that's the danger, because what, what in both cases, what we're involved in is idolatry. And this is where Calvin, you know, warns us that the human heart is an, is an idol factory, and we are susceptible to that sin. You know, the, the last verse of 1 John, my little children, uh, keep yourself from idols. And in the, in the result, I think our concern has to be the fact that the sin of idolatry is something that is we're far less sensitive to than we are to other issues of moral failure. Gary, in saying this, uh, talking about trajectories, uh, doesn't that also play in with the emphasis on the provisionality of doctrine in general uh, among post-conservatives, that we're, we're constantly reminded by them that that uh, any doctrinal formulation or statement like you might find in the Westminster Standards is, is provisional, um, and the, the emphasis on trajectory um, plays into that as well. So that the provisional doctrine is always giving way to a seed of trajectory that might be in it, but the doctrine as it's actually stated uh, in the past is, is now uh, up for being overhauled. Well, one of the emergent crowd, Doug Paget, has said that he thinks every Christian doctrine should be on the table and up for revision, including the Trinity, the deity of Christ, etc. Because by nature, all human theology is provisional. Um, I, I guess the, the post-emergent crowd, more so than, than any other, seems to display an open animosity toward creeds and confessions by virtue of their situation. They're situated in a time and place that, uh, you know, we fall prey to what C.S. Lewis once referred to as chronological snobbery. Uh, 
Sure, the new the new is always better. Right. Yeah, the so, new is always better. The newest word is the last word. Right. Yeah. Now remember, yeah, I was going to say, remember going back to Kant, if we don't have access to the noumenal realm, and that's that's where the reality to which do, what of what doctrine describes, right? Christian doctrine is is describing real things as they are in themselves. For instance, God has revealed himself to us. We, we Now, we can't know him exhaustively, uh, but we can know him truly, and we can know certain things about his uh, will for our lives, the plan of salvation, and so on. But these things are realities to which we cannot get at if we adopt Immanuel Kant's epistemology. And therefore, because we cannot get at them, we can never know that our formulation of those truths is accurate, and that That's I think right. is what's fueling this whole discussion. Uh, if we, if we're le- and this going back to Schleiermacher, right? We're left to our own subjective experience, and really we end up in solipsism. I mean, at the end of the day, we're locked into our own minds. That's all we have. Well, anytime you start talking about provisionalism, you you end up saying, in effect, that any attempt to articulate theological concerns um, by its very nature has a, a limitation on it. Uh, in some ways, it's true, but if, if, if we can't say in the sense of, of, of a proposition, God is love, and state that in a theological context in which the love of God is defined, for example, in John 3.16, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in it should not perish. Uh, we cannot make a statement about the love of God that is not framed in the context of God's character, which includes, as that text expressly says, that judgment is every bit as much a factor in God's love as is the, uh, the, the notion that God is just simply omnibenevolent. Um, this is something I've noticed about uh, the, the the post-conservative crowd, and special, especially, is they're very anxious to domesticate God in such a way that he becomes more and more attractive to uh, a rebellious society. And in the, we end up, in fact, um, domesticating God to the point that he doesn't bear any resemblance. This is what I meant when I highlighted earlier. I think our the greatest sin that we are susceptible to to committing uh, is idolatry. Of course, now that's in itself is very judgmental when you tell people that the deity that they've constructed uh, bears no resemblance to the God of the Bible, and as such, they're guilty of the sin of idolatry. But when you when you have the the very suggestion that God is approachable through other venues than through Christianity. You've got a different deity you're talking about. Absolutely, I think that 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 ties in with the with uh, very well with what Jeff is saying about Kantian philosophy in the sense that the fragment. You know what happens if you if you can't have access to the noumenal world is that everything becomes fragmented and one one attribute of God becomes fragmented from another attribute of God and God becomes plural. In his attributes and in his, I mean, he's no longer a single, simple being. He is, he is only multiplex, except that, you know, one, one of them gets to be sort of the king attribute, and that one is always love and liberalism, as we know. But, you know, what happens then is that context doesn't matter, as you were pointing out, Gary, in John 3, when, um, when judgment is set right alongside of love as, as uh, giving love its, its importance and its significance. I mean, how can we know how much God loved us unless we know what God saved us from? So you, know, you have the, the fragmentation of knowledge also affecting exegesis, how we understand particular passages, and also how we understand God himself, and that results in many forms of idolatry because anyone who, with an agenda will refashion God in his own image. As someone said, God created us in his image, and ever since then we've been returning the favor. Yeah. Uh, in, in response, uh, Lane, I don't know, did you look at John Bolt's chapter 
uh, in the volume that Gary edited, where he he proposes that that metaphysics uh, might actually be uh, the answer to relativity uh, in terms of are are we are we uh, are we uh, relative to the mo- to the mo- the modern person, and his answer is. Uh, it's actually metaphysics that establishes uh, relevancy. You mentioned God's simplicity, his being. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I, just looking at Bolt's chapter, I think he makes, makes a significant argument um, that metaphysics answers that question of how can we be relevant. Now, you know, uh, Van Til would be very sympathetic to that, uh, James, because he said that epistemology is determined by metaphysics. Uh, one of the the, the 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 problems in our current age is that epistemology gets divorced from uh, metaphysics or ontology. So, uh, and of course, uh, Boltz uh, is building off of the insights of Herman Bovink, right? That's and, right. Sure. That's exactly and Bovink, correct. And Bovink is the major influence on Van Til. And Van Til would say, "Look, we live in God's world. Okay, that's a so there's two realities. Now we would say there's the the divine reality, and then there's the created reality." And the divine reality impinges upon the created reality. And our understanding, our way of knowing, is therefore bounded by, one, God, and two, by the nature of the world that he has created. Uh, and, that is, and I think that's, in a sense, what, what uh, uh, John is getting after. I thoroughly enjoyed that chapter uh, because I think so he's right I. on the money. Yeah. He's right on the money. You think... Um, one of the things that we are now the beneficiaries of as a result of Dr. Bolt and the late John Fries' labors is we now have uh, Bob Inc.'s dogmatics in English and um, long-term benefit that I hope is the result of that is we have a greater appreciation for Van Til and uh, a greater appreciation for uh, the Reformed orthodoxy that Bob Inc. represented. That's right, um, and, and now uh, we, I can't. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, now we have the little fifth volume, right? The essays on uh, religion, science, and philosophy. So we now have that little companion volume to add to the, the Reformed dogmatic. Uh, you know, because of the fact that we are not, um, we don't have the theological or the, uh, the linguistical um, preparation that people in the 19th century do. You know, Charles Hodge had his students read Turretin Latin. Uh, so did Dabney. We now have, you know, Turretin in English. We now have Bob Inc. in English. And we have no excuse for being theologically sloppy when we have at our disposal those two works. You know, I, the, more, the more I, speaking for myself, the more I look at uh, these theological giants, and, and I would include the Reformed scholastics in there, uh, thanks to the help of Richard Muller and Carl Truman and men like that, we now have uh, uh, a wealth of literature, and really, you know, we are ignorant of our own tradition. Uh, now, tradition, of course, is subservient to Scripture. However, uh, we would benefit if we would just master what has been said beforehand. And then we can go on to constructive, uh, you know, if we think there are improvements that undoubtedly may need to be made. But let's master what's, let's know what we're talking about before we attempt to refashion doctrine. Like that's my own personal opinion, is let's know what we're talking about, then we can can look at improvements if they need to be made. Well, it certainly is. Go ahead. Sorry. There's a kind of arrogance that says we don't need that uh, perspective. Um, you know, if, if all people think that they can formulate a theological understanding um, of the Word of God in isolation from the past, and by taking their cues from what they hear around them, they will come up with a very distorted theology because the influence that they're going to be listening to uh, the, the grid through which they're processing and, and formulating the theology uh, is deficient. And I, don't, I wouldn't just stop at the uh, Protestant scholastics, but you read the Protestant scholastics, you know, the, the, the way in which they had assimilated and digested the Patristic Fathers, the Middle Ages. I mean, you can't read Calvin or Owen 
without sensing that these were men that had walked through the centuries of the Christian Church very Absolutely. carefully. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest that we only look at the uh, oh, yes, I know. Protestant. But, you know, the truth be told, the, uh, I mean, I've been on and, uh, reading on and off the Church Fathers since 1987, uh, and, and there's a lot of, and as you say, the Protestant reformers, whether it be Martin Luther or John Calvin or Martin Butzer or uh, uh, Philip Melanchthon, whether it be uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli, uh, whoever you, you, you mentioned, these men were steeped not only in the scriptures, but also in the early church fathers, and of course St. Augustine being the major influence uh, within the Reformed uh, context. Uh, we, we, um, well, you mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis and the problem of chronological snobbery. That's really what we're talking about here, is the idea that uh, we can get along without a familiarity with uh, what has been said in the past. Now, of, co- of course, just because something is old doesn't make it good either. No. Uh, but the, the point the point is the older theology has been tried and tested and, and, and found uh, useful. By the and, way, it was C.S. Lewis that once said that for every new book he read, he read three old ones. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember, I remember uh, making... Isn't that in the introduction to his... Uh, uh, to the uh, Athanasius uh, on the Incarnation. It is. I think where he makes those comments. So it's uh, worth uh, worthwhile. There you go. It's early church father. Uh, you know, the, irony of, the irony of all this, of course, is that these very people who are pressing for new and better theology wind up saying the things that have already been refuted by the post-Reformation tradition in particular, I think. You know, the the um, the openness controversy is really just refried Socinianism, and it was already dealt with by Owen, and as Carl Truman said, the Socinians said it better than the modern open theists did. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the idea of interpreting Romans 3 about the works of the law in, t- in terms of um, boundary markers in the new perspective on Paul is... Exactly the same tact the Roman Catholic Church took in in interpreting them of the ceremonies of the law, and all the reformers already knew about that interpretation and rejected it. So the fact that we don't know our Reformation tradition is really harming the Church in the sense that we can't have true progress unless we build on what's already been done, rather than, oh, I'm going to ignore what's been done and try something new. So, I mean, I just find it intensely ironic that if you, you know, it's really true that if you don't know the past, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's exactly what we find happening. That was, um, who said that? It was a Harvard professor of history. Oh, uh, George Santayana. Yeah, Santayana. George Santayana said that, so it's certainly true. But it's a a truism. I mean, he he, he, he made a, a, a statement that, that, our own experiences testifies is is valid. Mm-hmm. I think, especially in today's time, you know, um, we we are a church that catechizes our children. We've taken them through the Heidelberg Catechism. We've taken them through the shorter, and now we're working through the larger. And I am convinced, as Machen said, he said by the age of seven he had a better grasp of what Christian orthodoxy was than your average seminarian because his mother's diligence in catechizing him. And uh, I, I look back on my own background. I was raised in typical Southern Baptist churches where catechism was, what? What was that? We had flannel graphs and all that. And it, it, it didn't prepare me in the least um, as a person growing up in, in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, you know, I can see in some sense where the notion that this is not your father's Oldsmobile that the churches that basically were going about um, doing business as usual uh, simply reflected in many ways the the times in which they were situated. Um, churches that neglect to train their youth uh, or should be prepared for train wrecks when they leave this the the, the nest. And I've I've seen it more times than I care to admit that uh, if all we're going to do with church is occupy people and give them a sense of well-being, 
we're doing them a great injustice. I don't care what culture you're living in, whether it's in the third world or this world. I mean, this 21st century America, uh, our children have to have the theological filters uh, built into them early or they're going to be exposed to viruses that are going to have tragic effect on their immune system, to use that analogy. Well, Gary, we really appreciate your thoughts, and we thank you for coming on. We're about out of time today. Uh, Good to talk with you guys. Yeah, this yeah. has been great, and you're always welcome to come back and uh, talk whenever you'd like. I would like to uh, point our listeners to some other books if you'd like to get more. Gary Johnson, he is also a contributor to The Coming Evangelical Crisis, a co-editor with Father White of Whatever Happened to the Reformation, co-editor with Guy Waters on By Faith Alone, answering the challenges to the doctrine of justification, and also the editor of B.B. Warfield Essays on His Life and Thought, which I really enjoyed that one in particular. This uh, book we've been talking about today, Reforming or Conforming, which is a critique of post-evangelicalism, is supposed to come out in September. Is that correct? That is correct. So that's from Crossway. Uh, Keep your eyes open, and I'm sure uh, Westminster will have a good price on that. Uh, So we would encourage you to pick that up. Really great contributions in that volume. I also would like to thank Jeff. You can visit uh, their church website at calvary-amwell.org. Lane, of course, is at greenbaggins.wordpress.com. And uh, my favorite blog. It's great. We always it is. It's you a gotta blog. always keep your eyes open on the comments section, because you never know what's gonna happen. And uh, also, we want to thank James Dalzell, and uh, we appreciate having you on. I want to point people to castlechurch.org, where you can read our show notes and you can view our bibliography for today. You can also find more information about our other programs and also subscribe to our podcast feeds. If you'd like to get a hold of us, please visit castlechurch.org slash contact or just send us an email at christthecenter at castlechurch.org. We thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>